We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to Chasing Hardware, the podcast that sits down with the sports figures you grew up with and hears their stories. Welcome to Chasing Hardware. I'm your host, Rich Lamello. My guest today was one of the best fielding shortstops of all time. He retired with the highest fielding percentage at the position ever. In 1979, he posted the single best fielding year for a shortstop. And in 1971, he set a record for fewest errors by a shortstop. Further, he led one team to the playoffs after a 25-year drought and another team to the playoffs after a 39-year drought. And in the 1980 World Series, he batted 370, leading the Phillies to their first ever title. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Chasing Hardware, Mr. Larry Boa. Larry, welcome. It's nice to be here, Rich. Uh, Thanks for having me on. Oh, my pleasure. well, Larry, let, let's let's dig in. Um, obviously, a, a long and lengthy career. But it's amazing, almost five full decades in 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 pro baseball, which is incredible. Um, you were born in Sacramento, and right. your father had been a minor league baseball player and also managed some in the Cardinals system. Tell me a little bit about growing up in Sacramento, and also I, I have to ask this: if if I if I understand correctly, what I read, you went to McClatchy High School. You played yeah. basketball. You did not play baseball. You did. You got cut three times. Right. <laughs> I've got to hear exactly that story. Right. Obviously, Sacramento is in the, uh, uh, the the heat. There's a lot of heat during the summertime. All we did was play baseball when I was growing up. Played Little League, Babe Ruth League, American Legion, uh, but never had the opportunity to play high school. I got cut every year. And the coach didn't really say, you're not good enough. He said, you're too small. So my dad being a player and a manager in the Cardinal organization, you know, he said, Hey, don't let one guy ruin what you want to do. And it just so happens they had a summer league after my senior year that I got cut and the junior college coach came out and watched summer league. I had a pretty good game. And he says, Hey, I'd like you to come out for the, the Sacramento junior college baseball team. And I laughed at him. I said, I didn't even make the high school team. How am I going to make the junior college team? And he said, I'll give you every opportunity to make the team. And I said, great. And lo and behold, I went out and I made the junior college team, made all conference two years in a row. Uh, and then after my second year, obviously that was the first year of the draft. I didn't get drafted. 
uh, had one scout that watched me play. He liked what he saw. Uh, and uh, he got in touch with the front office in Philly. And he said, hey, I got a kid out here in Sacramento. He can run. He can throw. He's got good hands. I don't know if he's going to hit. But the worst scenario is we'll sign him and he'll be a, like a, a manager in the minor leagues eventually down the road. We can keep him in the organization. So they gave me the opportunity. And then in three years, I went to A, AA, and AAA, learned how to hit in AAA. And then my fourth year, again, uh, to me, you have to be at the right place at the right time. The Phillies were rebuilding. It, they were going to go with young kids. And I had the opportunity to start out there in Philadelphia. And I guess the rest is history. We took our lumps early in the 70s. And then from about 75 on, we had a real good team. It just so happens we played the big red machine and the Dodgers in the playoffs, and they beat us up a little bit. Then finally in 80, we won the first ever in Philly history world series, beating Kansas city four games to two. But, you know, looking back on that, uh, luck is involved being in the right place at the right time, taking advantage of opportunities, getting to have a manager that had me in the Meyer league stick with me in the beginning of my career at the big league level helped out a lot. Yeah. So I've been very blessed in that aspect of it. Yeah. And, well, and I mean, so many parts of this are, are fascinating to me as I was reading about it. So, so that eight, that uh, scout who caught wind of you uh, out in Sacramento, Eddie Bachman, he, Paul Owens, who would ultimately be uh, general. Uh, general manager and manager. Right. Right. But um, he, at the time he's the farm director and Eddie Bachman has film on you. Right. And and says to Paul Owens, puts a, a bed sheet on the wall in the hotel, says, in a hotel and says, you got to see this guy. And Owens is complaining that the 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 um, it's too, it's too blurry. Right. And the guy says, that's not blurry. That's how fast this kid is. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what, to, 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 to add further to that, uh, to that story, which was true. Um, we had an exhibition game when I was playing with the junior college, didn't count for the league. And Eddie Bachman called Paul Owens. He says, hey, I got this guy in Sacramento. I'm going to go look at him. And then uh, I'll tell you what I got. They're playing a doubleheader. And uh, I'll get back to him. So sure enough, Eddie's out there. And the first game of the doubleheader, I got kicked out in the third inning. And the second game, I got kicked out in the fourth, I think. So Eddie called him and Paul Owens says, how do you do? And he goes, they called him Pope. Pope, I don't know. He says, what do you mean you didn't, know? You didn't see him play? He says, I saw him play, but he got kicked out of both games before the fifth inning. So <laughs> that's how that thing sort of unraveled. And eventually they did sign me with uh, it, Paul Owens before he passed away. He used to tell me that story. He says, I just shook my head and went, wow, that's unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. And, and, and I love this. You get to uh, Spartanburg, a league ball in South Carolina. Obviously you're, you know, a, a young guy. And in your first game, if I read this correctly, you struck out four times versus a young Nolan Ryan. And you thought four, yourself, times, four times in a row. And the one thing I did when I was coming up through the system, I, I had the ability to put the ball in play. Right. Uh, eventually, they made me a switch hitter. But that very first game, after the four strikeouts, Bob Wellman was our manager. And I was sitting in my uh, locker with my head down. And he came up and he says, you all right? And I went, I called him Skip. I said, hey, Skip, it if professional baseball is like this, you guys might as well send me back to Sacramento. I said, I have no chance. And then he says, well, this guy's going to be special. You know, I'm thinking he's the manager. He's patting me on my back, boosting me up a little bit. And it did. It turned out to be Nolan Ryan. And Nolan tells that story. 
But I got last laugh on Nolan because in the 80 playoffs, he had a big lead against us, two games to two going into the fifth game in Houston. And I got to hit the start of the inning off that knocked him out of the game. And we eventually beat Houston and went on to play uh, Kansas City and win the World Series. Yeah, I, lo- I love that symmetry, how that you know kind of worked out. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. And you start playing the next year you go to a ball and you're playing for Frank Lucchese and you would end up playing for him, uh, double a Reading, then triple a Eugene. Right. And then he comes up with you and Denny Doyle, who's your second baseman partner, right. play partner. Like the three of you kind of ride through the minors together and kind of come up into the majors together. Um, and one thing I had to ask you, um, you're, you're in Reading. And I saw that you you only played like, you know, 20 or 30 games your first year of A-ball because of military service. Obviously, that's during Vietnam. What what exactly was happening there? It, it was in the Army Reserve. You know, okay. I, I was in the Army Reserve, so I had to go there. Uh, and I was very fortunate that, you know, obviously, I take my hat off to the people that served in Vietnam because it wasn't for people like that. I wouldn't have my opportunity to play, but I got yeah. in, involved with the Army Reserves and you know, the fact that Frank Lucchese had me for three years and then he takes the job first year in the big leagues because he was a minor league manager that spent a lot of times in the minor leagues, rode a lot of buses. Uh, he was a baseball rat. Sure. And it was about first month and a half, two months into the season, my first year, his first year. And I know I was hitting under, under 200. I was hitting about 180, 185. And when I came in, I remember telling Denny, I said, because uh, there were rumors in the paper that I was going to get sent down. Hmm. And uh, when I walked in, Denny says, Frank wants to see you. And I said, I shook his hand. I said, I'm probably going to be sent down here. I said, I just want to thank you for helping me. And he said, I will see how it plays out. So I went in there and Frank says, I want you to sit down. So I sat down and he says, look, he says, this is my first year manager. And this is your first year in the big leagues. I just want to tell you, I don't care if you get a hit the rest of the year. You're my shortstop. You're going to start every game health as long as you're healthy and we'll see what happens. You know, I left that meeting and I went, here's a manager that did all that time in the minor leagues. He's got some pressure on them. We're not winning because we're young. And he tells me, don't worry about what you hit. I said, man, if I can't do this, then I don't deserve you. Well, I ended up having a pretty good second half. I hit it around 250. And, but I look back at that. If it wasn't for Frank Lucchese, I could have been sent down and maybe never been heard from again but he stayed with me and that was the luxury of having to play with him in a double a and triple a and during those three years we won our we won every league title we knew how to win and one of those teams we won 26 games in a row which is unheard of um but again i look back on that and if it wasn't for guys like frank lucasey and eddie bachman who signed me i I wouldn't have got that opportunity and because i signed for two thousand dollars i went through the draft didn't get drafted you know, usually when that happens and you're not doing good, they release you and they move on. But again, the stars were aligned right and things fell into place for me. Yeah. And and when you were in going into your, uh, I guess, going into your fourth professional year, uh, there's there's some buzz that you might make the big club, but you're probably going to be utility guy. They're going to use your speed in the outside. Right. You right. approach the manager and say, I don't want to go up. If I'm not going to play every day, I don't want to go up. And the guy says, okay, we'll send you to AAA. But he says, if you want to be an everyday player in the majors, you're going to have to learn to hit from both sides of the plate. That's exactly right. 
And at Bob's that age, you teach yourself how to be, with Lucchese's help at AAA, you teach yourself how to be a, a switch hitter. No question. It was Bob Skinner. And I remember the conversation like it was yesterday. Uh, he was talking to me. He says, you know, you made this team as a utility player. He says, and, you know, when someone says that to you and you, you don't get drafted, you, you don't make your high school team, the first thing people say, why didn't you go? And I said, I didn't want to play part-time. I wanted to be an everyday player. And I told him, I said, I kept calling my manager, Skip. I said, Skip, I want to play every day. And he said, well, if you want to play every day, you have got to improve offensively. He says, how about if we send you to AAA and you learn how to switch it? And I'm going, wow, I got to learn how to switch it in AAA. It's like, you know, all of a sudden you, you eat soup with the right hand. Somebody puts it in your left hand. They say, now eat it. It's going to be very, very uncomfortable. I, I went there. I learned how to switch it. I hit every day extra on the field. Uh, I made myself a pretty good player. And again, I look back on my career. I, like I said, I'll be the first to admit I couldn't hit water if I fell out of a boat when I came up, <laughs> but I got over 2000 hits with the help of a great hitting instructor and Billy DeMars uh, managers that stuck with me. And it, it's a story that I look back on. I wish, and I even told my dad before he passed, I said, man, we should have learned how to switch hit when I was nine or 10 years old. And he goes, you're right. Because I, I could run and I could throw, but it, it was a tremendous advantage for me at that time to switch hit. Uh, that time I struck out four times against Nolan. It was all right-handed. <laughs> I knew I had no chance. I said, you know what? In my mind, I felt if I'm going to face pitching like that, you know, it, it went through my mind. They started telling me about that double and I went, ah, I'm okay. I'm okay. And then finally, when this thing came up with Bob Skinner, he says, you can be an everyday player if you learn how to switch it. And I, and I said, that's what I want to do. Yeah. That's, that's so cool. And, um, and so then, so, so in 70, you make the team. And like you said, team's not doing well. It's it's a you know bunch of young guys. And there's some interesting, it's it's interesting. I read one account that basically said you were the first piece, like in that build to 1980, right. you know, right. you could argue it started in the late 60s. You come right. up and they bring in Tim McCarver with and um uh and Kurt Flood from St. Louis, but Flood decides not to come. Right. right. Um he's gonna challenge the reserve clause, which is you know a separate conversation. Um, but you know, McCarver comes in. He's obviously won a couple rings with St. Louis. So right. he knows how to win. Um, and I, I am curious, Kurt Flood says, I'm not gonna go. D did you guys, I mean, you're just in the majors for five minutes, so it's probably not top of mind at all for you. But like, are people going, what the hell is he doing? What what's the reserve? What like what is this? Oh, yeah. I was just happy to be in the big league camp. Uh yeah, I had no idea about the reserve clause. I had no idea, but you know, looking back on it, he was so instrumental in what's now turned out to be free agent guys getting big money being able to leave after so many years uh and i really believe that with this generation today there should be classes on what kurt flood and marvin miller meant to baseball because like i said i admit when it happened i i didn't even i, I knew kurt flood was a good player but i didn't know anything about the reserve clause or anything like that yeah and uh now i try to even to this day, I'm still with the Phillies. I try to tell guys, man, you guys ought to do some research on Kurt Flood, what he did and what he stood for, how important he was. And Marvin Miller, who was in charge of the Players Association, they meant so much to baseball. Yeah. But, you know, guys today are they're, it's a little bit different, and, and a lot of them don't even know history of of the game. And you know, I'm not holding that against anybody, but 
it was so it was such an important thing that happened in Major League Baseball. I would think I would like these young guys to know exactly how it unfolded. Yeah, I mean, they should, it basically ended his career, but it set the path, you know, for, right. for everything that's happened since then. Like they should light a candle right. for him. Um, so so that happens. And then, and then like, you know, again, like these incremental things, you're still kind of coming in fifth and sixth place every year, right? He's still the manager for the first couple of years. Luzinski comes up, you know, through the minors a couple, you know, like a year or two behind you um, in 71, you set that record that I mentioned on the open, right? Fewest, fewest uh, errors allowed by a shortstop in a season 11, which is insane. Right. Um, again, did you have any sense that that was that, that what a milestone it was, or is it on no. reflection? No, I didn't. I was just trying to keep my head above water at that time. Uh, you know, as you said, it was the start. I, I was basically the first guy that went, like you said, we got Greg Lesdensky, we had Bob Boone, uh, then Mike Schmidt. Uh, we had a good nucleus down there that we learned how to win together. We learned how to lose together. And as the years progressed closer to 75, you could see everything coming into play. I mean, Schmidt, his first year, he hit under 200, but you saw the unbelievable power. I think he hit over 20 home runs. Uh, you saw what Lazinski could do. Then we made a huge trade in like 72 where we got Carlton. And if you look at that team, I don't know how many games we won, 58, whatever it was. It was he won 59. 28 games. 59. He won 28 games on a team that was, I hate to use the word, pathetic. We just didn't, we couldn't hit. Yeah. You know, we had we had a nucleus there. But to do what he did, and people ask me, why did why did you guys seem to win? When he pitched, and I, my, it was very easy for me. We knew when Carlton pitched, if we got two runs, we could win two to one. If we got one run, we could win one to nothing. Right. And whereas the other guy is not taking anything away from him because Carlton's a Hall of Fame pitcher, you'd have to score five runs, six runs to stay in the game or win the game. And we weren't capable of doing that, especially at that young age. But what he did, that feat that he pulled off, I don't know if anybody's ever going to do that. It's win as many games and for him individually as opposed to what we did as a team is incredible. Yeah. I, I mean, there are very few stats that, you know, when I'm like doing my research for, you know, any sport, any guy that just jump off the page and I, he wins 27 games that year. The other three starters combined won 10. <laughs> it's incredible. It's incredible. And, you know, people said, well, what was his demeanor when he came in the locker room? Because Steve was a pretty quiet guy. He never talked to the writers or anything, but on the days that he pitched, when he walked in, he goes, today's win day, boys. And that's all he would say. He'd go right to his locker. You know, everyone's saying, oh, man, Steve says, today's win day. We better, we better turn it up a notch here. We got to win. <laughs> but, but yeah. But, it, you know, it, it may be because we knew we had a shot, no matter if we scored two runs or one run, and maybe just added the extra adrenaline for us when we took the field. Yeah. And, and were those the days when, you know, cause obviously McCarver had been there for a couple of years is, is McCarver, his catcher. Yeah. On those days? Okay. Yeah. yeah. And eventually Bob Boone got in there and did it, but that was a good battery, you know, Carlton and McCarver, they, they went back, did it in St. Louis and Tim McCarver was an unbelievable leader for that team. You know, he was an older guy on that team. Darren Johnson was there. Those guys were older guys and they helped guys like myself. Um, you know, and I in my in my first couple of camps in the big leagues before I got to the big leagues, I had guys like Bobby Wine, Tony Taylor, Cookie Rojas. All those guys helped me so much in the mental part of the game and staying focused. And and you know, I, I try to tell these guys today that are basically established players, whatever you learn, pass it on down. Because baseball, that's what baseball is all about. Sure. Your knowledge, you pass it down to the next generation. Now, when they get to you, 
a certain status, they pass it down. And it's ever, it's, it's evolving every year. And you try to get that across to some of these young guys. And, and, you know, a lot of them are doing that. They're passing down their knowledge and, and helping guys out because it's hard to play in the big leagues. I'm going to be honest with you. It's hard to hit. Uh, if you think about it, the greatest players in the world make seven outs out of 10 at bats. If you were a doctor and you had 10 operations and you failed seven of them, you'd be looking for a job in baseball. You're considered a hall of fame player. So that's how difficult it is to hit up here. And today, the way the game is structured, you know, back when we played pitchers took a lot of pride in complete games. So you face a guy three, probably four times a game. And now the way the game is sort of changed, I might say guys might face three pitchers a night. You know, they get the starter, face them twice. A reliever comes in, they face him, another reliever. So it makes it really difficult to hit now. I mean, you're not facing the same guy four times. Yeah. I, I, I interviewed Ron Say a month or two ago, and I said, you know, who's the toughest pitcher to face, you know, in your career? And he goes, they all were. <laughs> he said every <laughs> single one of them. You know, like you said, when, when two out of three get you out, you know, that's tough. Right. <laughs> it is. I mean, it's really tough. And, and you know, when you're watching games on television, it looks so easy. You say, how do they take that pitch? It's right down the middle. But people don't understand the movement on the ball. There's sink, there's cut, there's a curveball. You got to make up your mind. Is it a strike? Is it a ball? In, in hundreds of a second. And to be able to do that for a long period of time, you know, I was very lucky to play 16 years. Uh, you know, it wears on you after a while, but uh, it was a ball. There's nothing I could really do to change it. You know, I talked to a lot of guys that have played two or three years in the big leagues. And their favorite line to me is, God, I wish I had done this, or I wish I can honestly tell you, I did everything I wanted to do. I would have loved to hit home runs. I wasn't a home run hitter, but I did everything. I played on all-star games. I won a world series. I got in playoffs. I hit 300. Uh, I, I got gold gloves. I think I got the most out of my ability. And that's what I look back on, uh, you know, because I, you know, again, I revert back to guys. Now it goes by fast guys. So absorb everything, enjoy everything because before you know it, your career is going to be over. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and as this team starts to build, uh, you know, a couple of interesting ones kind of pop up. So Dave Cash comes over. For, so so um, Denny Doyle's traded, your buddy from the right. Miles, and, and right. you guys have had been a successful can't tandem. But Dave Cash comes in. Cash has been the starting second baseman for the Pirates when they win. So here's right. another guy who knows how to win. Right. You, you two, I think I got this right. You two, three straight years, lead the majors in double plays. Right. Uh, I think 74 through 76 Um, in 75 Dick Allen, who has been a star in Philadelphia, but also had a really rough relationship with the fans and the media and and leaves and bounces around to a bunch of different teams. He comes back. I think a couple of guys on the team basically convinced him, Hey Dick, things have changed. Mike Schmidt and uh, Gary Maddox went to his, yeah. Oh, they went to his farm and talked to him about, man, we need you. Uh, you know, before he came back to us, all you read about what you just said, he caused trouble in Philly. He wasn't really a good guy. So, you know, you read all this stuff. And then for me to see Dick Allen, none of that was true as far as I was concerned. He was a great teammate. He was unbelievable in the locker room. He had a tremendous amount of ability. He really helped our young guys at that time. He was going towards the end of his career. He sort of uh, galvanized us together. Sure. Uh, Told us we can do this. You guys got all kinds of ability. And if, uh, along with him and then Dave Cash coined the phrase, yes, we can. Um, and it seemed like it was a puzzle that was just coming together. 
But Dick Allen, uh, to me, was a tremendous individual. And I, again, I don't know what he did before, except reading the papers and that. But sure. I do know playing with him in our clubhouse during spring training, he was a big asset to the Phillies. Yeah, and could do everything. Could hit yes. the power, could run. Unbelievable. He had this bat that weighed, to me, it weighed like 50 pounds. He'd hold it on the end and swing it. And uh, I told him one day in spring training, uh, you know how you swing the lead bat? For some reason, it wasn't out there. And I said to the bat boy, give me Dick Allen's bat. So I just started swinging it. I mean, it was like 36 uh, inches long, 40 ounces. And he'd be holding it on the end. This guy would hit balls that I would hate to see him play now in the smaller ballparks. There's no telling where these balls go because he was unbelievably strong. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't he have like a, he'd like one hand was on the knob basically. Yeah. The little finger was off on the bottom and he whipped that thing. Like it was like 28 ounces and it was 40 ounces. I'm going, man, you gotta be some kind of strong to do that. Yeah. Jeez. That's just amazing. And, and, and in addition to getting him, you guys get Tug McGraw. He's going to play a role going forward and you get Gary Maddox. Uh, for for Willie Montanez, I mean, what a you know huge year. You're you're still not in the playoffs, but now you're competing. Now you're not. Right. We knew every we knew going in after we had those pieces of the puzzle that we should we should be vying for playoffs for the next five six years, yeah. and we knew that. Uh, but uh, again, the teams we played and that we kept getting beat by, they were really good. The Big Red Machine with Pete yeah. and Johnny Bench and Joe Morgan, Perez, and then the Dodgers with that infield that played together for so long and the pitching staff they always had. Whether it was a call by an umpire, a broken bad hit, an error, a bad pitch, we just couldn't get over the hump, and eventually we did. Yeah, yeah. It, it, and, and yeah, like you said, you know, rough one against Cincinnati, that year where they, they – uh, shut you guys out three games to nothing. Then they shut up the Yankees. They swept them four games. Right. Just, you know, no losses in the postseason. I know. it. <laughs> you know, it's just crazy. Take your hat off. You know, we played yeah. against them during the season. We knew they had a good team. But uh, when things don't go your way in a short series, at that time, they were short series. They were best of five. And if you got out of the gate slow there, there's a good chance you're going to go home early. Yeah. Um. And you, you lose Dave Cash to free agency. So now free agency is starting to kick in. So that's going to, you know, kind of play a part in, in this right. build. Um, you get Bake McBride in from St. Louis, who puts up, he's, you know, 339 his first year. I mean, Great you know, player. He could produce and, and run the bases like you and him, uh, Maddox. Like all of a sudden you guys have like speed on the base paths. Um, and you guys you have another tight race where you knock off Pittsburgh kind of on the last week of the year, but again, you lose to the Dodgers um, and you get uh, you're in the all-star game. You've got a gold glove. And let me, let me ask you that one question. You won two gold gloves yet. You are, as I said, at the top of the show, statistically one of, you know, the, the best fielding shortstops, uh, you know, certainly upon retirement uh, that the game, which, you know, the game had been played for a hundred years. Right. Ago. You won two gold gloves, even though you lead the league in fielding six times. Right. Now, I know that there's other good players out there, but did you ever ask, why am I not oh, winning gold gloves? I, I knew why I didn't win them because, and this is how it was beginning in that, during that era, Dave Concepcion, who I admire a lot. Sure. Uh, he, he was a pretty good hitter and they looked at batting averages a lot. And, you know, his batting average always was a little bit higher than mine. 
And that's how they used to do it. Okay. And now it seems like I watch the way they pick it now. They look at the defensive situations, and I think that's important. So uh, I don't know. I, I just think that if they had just done it on merit alone, I would have won a few more. But that's just right. the way the game was back then. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like I said, I, I respect Davey a lot. We have a little thing going between uh, him and, and myself. And uh, a great competitor. I thought he was a great player. But that's the reason that, that I didn't win more gold gloves. But that team you're talking about that we had with the addition of Bake and Maddox, we could beat you with speed. We could beat you with defense. We could slug with you. We could pitch with you. It didn't, wasn't just one way. We, it wasn't, oh, they have to score eight runs and win. We could win two to one. We could win nine to eight. So there were different ways we could beat you. Sure. And it was, it was a team put together. Paul Owens did a tremendous job. And uh, we were we weren't really weak in any any area. Yeah, and then and then in '79 free agency, you bring in Pete Rose, right? And you also pick up uh, Ted Sizemore is traded. Sizemore has replaced Dave Cash as your partner. Manny Trio right. comes in, um, and th- this would be the pairing for you that would win the World Series the next right. year. Pete Rose comes in the locker room. Now, obviously, you know, a fierce competitor, you know, in anybody's eyes for you guys, especially this is, you know, the guy you've had to play against and, you know, is, is beating you out to get to world series. What's it like when all of a sudden Pete walks in the locker room? He was unbelievable because he, you know, he brings that, that edge to the clubhouse. He brings that. If we, you know, we were all, we all played together, the court group and we kept coming up short. Pete was like the icing on the cake for us. He would come in and tell us how good he hated looking across the dugout and seeing the guys that we had on our team. He says, you guys should be winning more. You got to win one. You got too good a team. Just reinforcing everybody. And, you know, I'm not saying nobody else did that, but when you have a new voice come in and say that, it might mean something. Of course, a guy that gets looking back on his career over 4,000 hits, that's, that's incredible. So sure. when he's telling guys in the locker room, you guys, you guys don't realize how good you are. Come on, we got to pick it up, blah, blah, blah. And again, he was the guy that, that him and, and I still give credit to Dallas Green who came down. They gave us that little extra push that got us over the hump. Yeah. Now, and Dallas, you had played with Dallas in the minors for a short period, right? What was what was your relationship like with him? And then and then obviously it was under Danny Ozark. You guys have been going to the playoffs, coming up short. Dallas comes down into the dugout. Right. What was that like? Two, what was your relationship two, like and what was that like? Two complete different personalities. Danny basically let us play very Danny was a good manager for us. We just couldn't get over the hump and Dallas's personalities. One's up here and one's down here. One's low key. The other guy screams and hollers. I don't mind Dallas, but a lot of our guys on our team didn't like it because there was a, such a drastic change. If he didn't like the way we were playing, we read about it the next day in the paper. Whereas if Danny didn't like the way we were playing, he would call you in the office. He'd be more one-on-one. You wouldn't read about it. And some of our guys, it didn't bother me because I, I sort of liked that extra boost. Um, but the guys like Gary Maddox and Big McBride and, and uh, Schmitty, their personalities were a little bit different. And to have that one extreme to the other, it caught a lot of guys off guard. Sure. So looking back, we got used to Dallas. We knew that Dallas wanted to win. And we started saying, okay, we got it. Because he came out and said, you guys, the first thing he said, you guys haven't done anything. You keep getting the playoffs. You haven't done nothing. You need a ring on your finger until you get a ring on your finger. I don't want to hear about how good this team is because there's a whole lot of teams that get there, but they don't get to the, the they don't finish the, the mountain climb. They, they finish a little short. So basically we started saying, okay, well, we'll show you how good we are. 
I mean, it was like he was trying to motivate us. Yeah. And again, it finally kicked in and we, we started playing pretty good. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've read some things during that season, like in September, he's reading you guys, the riot act. And oh. he, there's fierce, you know, kind of yelling in the clubhouse and stuff. Like it was combative. Well, he, 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 he benched Lazinski because he wasn't hitting. He took Gary Maddox out of a game and put Lonnie Smith in. Uh, he put Keith Moreland in. He wasn't afraid. If he thought some of the veterans were not holding their end of the barking up, he would insert one of these young kids. And it was almost like, hey, you're not doing anything. I'm going to give these kids a chance. Sure. Which, looking back at it, a lot of guys didn't like it. But, you know, it turned out to be a blessing in disguise because every one of those guys, we needed them eventually during the course of, of us getting to where we wanted to go. Yeah. Yeah. All those guys you just mentioned were like, you know, key producers, you know, kind of right. in, in, the, in the playoffs. Right. And um, you guys, and it's a, it's a tight race. You guys, it comes to the last weekend, you in Montreal, this is that Montreal team that was just always close and couldn't clinch it. Right. Um, at, you know, the, the, um, you know, Andre Dawson and Warby, Gary Carter, uh, Gary Carter, uh, uh, Ellis Valentine, Marty, Marty, they had a, they had a real good team. Um, Valentine. Yeah. Ellis Valentine. Yeah. Um, so it comes down to that final weekend. You guys, I think you win by a game, right? Like you clinched on Saturday. We had to go into Montreal, which okay. was hard to win up there. Really hard to win to give you a sort of play it out, how it happened. Uh, we had a night game Thursday in Philly, and we had to go to Montreal and play a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. We had to win two out of three in there, or we weren't going to win. So, again, looking back, it sort of you sort of laugh at it. When you usually go to Montreal, they they say okay, 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 and they get through customs and that. We landed after a night game in Philly. It was like one o'clock. They checked every single bag. They opened up every single bag. We didn't get to our hotel like till 3.30. And this was all planned. There's no doubt in my mind. For sure. They were going to make it as miserable as they could for us. And, uh, you know, we knew we knew once they started opening everybody's suitcase what was going on. <laughs> but uh, that series was a great series. And Mike Schmidt came up with probably the biggest. I know he hit a lot of home runs, but that was a huge home run. He hit off of Stan Bonson to give us give us the, the second win out of that, that uh, three-game series. We didn't have to worry about the last game. But that was like, oh, my God, we finally got over the hump because, again, we were playing a good team. And, you know, the next year we had that strike and we were tearing it up. We were winning the first half and we had a big lead. I want to say seven or eight game lead. Then we had the strike and they were trying to change the schedule a little bit, saying, well, if you won the first half, there's no way you can win the second half, no matter what you did. So we already were declared first half winners, but we were also told you can win every single game. The second half, you have to play somebody, which I'm not saying we didn't try, but mentally you say, man, we're in. It doesn't matter what we do. We're not going to be able to win both halves. Right. Montreal won. And then they beat us two out of three in Philadelphia. So if that season goes without a strike, we win that season that we win that again. Yeah. But again, the way it was situated and uh, we had to play them and, and again, they had a good team. And, and speaking of that strike, that's a funny one where I think during that season, I, I might have this wrong, but I think the reds had the best record in baseball, right. but didn't win the first or second half. So they don't go to the playoffs. And in the national league East, 
the Cardinals end up with the best record overall, right. but they right. finished second to you in Montreal, each of the, you know, two right. halves. It was so weird. Two, I mean, you could argue that it should have been the Reds and the Cardinals in the playoffs. Yeah. It's far no from question. that. Yeah. No um, and, and in 80, I'm fascinated because I, I, like, I, I saw a clip of you, you know, cheering on the Eagles, obviously, uh, you know, in the Super Bowl. Um, that year in Philadelphia was insane. You guys go to the World Series and win. The Eagles, the Sixers, and the Flyers all go to the respective championships. They all lose. But unbelievable. That's an unbelievable year. It's unbelievable. And, and I see the situation as we speak today is sort of unfolding. I mean, the Phillies went to the World Series last year. Hopefully we can do it again this year. But uh, the Eagles are in the Super Bowl. The Sixers are playing really good. The Flyers aren't there yet, but what that does to a city, people don't understand. It, it, it gives so much energy to a city. And that particular year in 80, to have all four go to the championship round, and even though we were the only one, that city was electric for the entire year. Whether the snow was falling, it was 105 degrees. Everybody sort of united together, and they were on our side. And it was, it was a tremendous feeling in Philadelphia that year. It's going to be, to me, that's hard to do to get four teams go to the finals on every one of those teams, um, regardless of how many won just to get four to get in the finals is something unbelievable. Yeah. It's just, it's just unbelievable. You know, it's another one that just kind of jumps off the page. Right. I mean, obviously there've been, you know, famously New York had the, the jets, you know, 68. So January 69 and then right. the Mets and the Knicks, but you know, to have all four is just, is just incredible. Right. Um, and so you guys win. And in that, so you, you mentioned earlier in that national league championship series, you guys are playing the Astros. Who Houston. Yeah. You're playing Houston. And um, yeah, like you said, in game seven, Nolan Ryan, I think, I think he's winning like five to two in the seventh inning. I mean, you yeah, know, this is, it was game five. It was only a five it, game series. Yeah, this is it. Yeah. And yeah, like you said, you get things going with a single and the big right. rally. Um, what was the feeling like on that bench? Was there like somebody who's like walking up and down going, let's go, let's go rally caps, well, all that stuff. Or- it's ironic. You said that because if you take a look at, at Nolan Ryan's record, when he has a lead going in the seventh inning, it's off the charts. It was like, I, I want to say it was like 78 and three or whatever it was. And I remember I was leading off and Pete came up to me. And he says, if you get on here, we're going to win this game. And I'm saying to myself, Pete, I know you played a long time. I didn't say this, but Nolan Ryan's out there. <laughs> and it happened so fast. It was like within four pitches. Because people say, why didn't Bill Verdon take out Nolan Ryan? I swung it, I think, at the first pitch, got a hit. Booney took a pitch. He hit a double play ball off Ryan's. It went off Ryan's glove right behind the mound. And it would have been a double play, but it was ruled a hit. And then Greg Gross comes up and first pitch drops a perfect bunt down the third baseline. And within five pitches, we have the bases loaded and no outs. And I'm going, oh, wow, we might win this thing. And then Pete drew a walk. It was a long at bat. And as he drew the walk, he throws his bat because I was the third. And he's screaming at Nolan. He goes, you ain't got enough. You ain't. And I'm, I'm saying to myself, Pete, don't wake this guy up, man. We don't let, let a sleeping dog lie here. But Pete, that's Pete's personality. You know, you ain't got enough, Nolan. You ain't got... And eventually we knocked him out. But that was one of those series that went, every game was extra innings with the exception of the first game, every single game. And people don't understand that was might have been one of the greatest playoffs ever. And playing in the Astrodome where it was jam packed, the noise couldn't get out. It was a deafening sound every pitch. And that was a series that Terry Poole, who was the right fielder, that was the most incredible series I've ever seen a hitter have. Every time he got up, uh, he had 12 or 13 hits and he was just crushing the ball. 
but uh, eventually we had to bring in Dick Ruthman. He got the, the final out. And once we beat Houston, it was like, man, we don't care who we play. This is like a big elephant lifted off our shoulders. We're in the World Series. And that's how we, that's how we, our attitude, that's what we felt going in that it were, it's meant to be. We're finally going to win this thing. And we did. Yeah. And you, and in, in the World Series, as I mentioned, uh, you bat 375. Schmidt has a huge series. You know, a bunch of guys really step up, obviously. You right. Series. But you have, you have a couple of uh, Schmidt's the MVP. You you hit three seventy five, but almost more importantly, you you score three runs. You have a couple RBIs and you steal three bases. And the one I love is in game one, you guys are down for nothing. It's like you yep. guys are asleep, and sure. um, you get a single. And I think I read this correctly. Dallas Green, you're not supposed to steal. <laughs> he gave. A, I had a green. There was a green light, red light with me. Guys that can run. He says you're on your own until you see the red light. And you know. We were down for nothing. And Dennis Leonard was pitching and I, I was watching his move. I said, I can steal his bag. And I knew I he said, no, you know, I lifted the third base coach. We had a sign. No. And I looked at it. I'm not saying we were dead, but we, we looked lethargic. We, we started off slow and I said, screw it. I'm going. I stole the base. I thought I had an unbelievable jump. And then I watched the replay and it was boom, boom. I'm, I was safe, but it was bang, bang. And Booney ended up getting a hit, and we got a, he had a double, and somebody else drove him in. And we, before you know it, it was four two. But when I scored the run, instead of Dallas saying "nice going," he goes, "Did you see the red light?" I said, "Yeah." And he says, "Why'd you run?" I said, "I just thought we were down." I, he says, "No, no, no, no." He says, "I'm gonna tell you right now. If you got thrown out there, he says you might as well just kept going." He says, "I was taking you out of the game." I and I looked at him. I said, "In a World Series," he says, "I don't care." He says, I'm glad you made it, but I had a hold on you. And I went, wow. And I look back at that, even when the, to this day, you know, when you watch World Series, I, I see that play again. And um, I think Tony Kubek or Joe Graziola says that was the play that ignited the Phillies. And I, I look back and I didn't think anything of it. I just want to get us going. But it was a big play because if I get thrown out there, I'm, like he said, I might as well just keep running, take my uniform off. I'm out. But it turned out to be good. And uh, we eventually – they gave us a good fight, but uh, we eventually won this thing in six games. Yeah, it was an exciting series, back and forth. But I, I, yeah, I thought that was great. Just you know, just aggression. Um, right. You know, sometimes you just <laughs> uh, you know, you're, it's a feel. It's a feel that I had. But again, I thought I had a great jump, and then when I slid in, I, the ball's right there, and I went, "Oh my god!" You know what I'm saying? Because I mean, I'm sure that if they had replay, then they would have looked at it. But I was safe because they showed it a couple times. But to be that close after you get a uh, a red light, uh, you know, don't run. I was holding my breath. There's no question about that. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. That's awesome. Um, yeah. So, so you guys win, and and, and uh, first World Series championship for the Phillies ever. Um, and and as I you know kind of mentioned back at the beginning, when you guys first made the playoffs in '76, it had been like 25 years. So right. I mean, obviously, this team is. And then, and then 81, the disappointment losing to Montreal. And then after the season, and I, I, I don't like to get into like, you know, contract stuff all that much, right. but you, you basically have a verbal agreement with the owner, Rudy Carpenter. Rudy Carpenter, who just was selling the team to Bill Giles. Yeah. It was a verbal, uh, and I keep going back to David Concepcion because him and I were being compared a lot. He had just signed a three-year deal. And I remember going up to Ruley and I said, Hey, 
you know, he says, I want to talk to you. I want to give you an extension. I said, he says, what do you look? I said, I want a three-year deal. He says, okay. He says, I think you earned it. And he says, but I just have to tell you that, you know, the team that I sold the team to Bill. I said, I understand that. I said, as long as everything's squared away with you and Bill, I don't need to sign anything. I trust you. I said, I'll wait till Bill takes the reins over. And so eventually the transaction goes through. And um, so I get a call from Bill and he says, what are you doing? It was, it was sometime in January. And I said, uh, nothing. He says, can you come to the office? And I'm thinking, okay, he wants me to sign this contract. So I go in the office and uh, he says, um, you know, I know you and Ruli had a, a verbal agreement. He says, Ruli talked to me about it. And at the time I, I said, okay. He says, the more I've thought about it, I can't give you a three-year deal. I, don't, I can't justify this. And I said, what? And I said, basically you're, you're going against a deal that was already consummated. He says, no, I'm the owner now. So I said, well, if you're not going to honor this, then you might as well trade me. And he says, well, you're a five and 10, which meant, you know, 10 years in the big leagues, five with the same team. So yeah. And he says, you're going to have to okay the trade. I said, yep. Yeah. So whoever you trade me to, you can, I'm, I'm going to say yay or nay. Right. And so, uh, about three or four days go by and I get a call from Dallas who's in Chicago. Now he went to Chicago. Yep. And he says, um, Hey, I think, uh, he, he was reading everything that transpired. He said, would you come to Chicago? And I said, are you going to give me a long-term contract? He goes, yeah, I'll give you a four-year deal. And, uh, I started, I said, let me think about it because Chicago at that time wasn't. And so the more I thought about it, I went, because he's starting to get Dallas, starting to get players from Philadelphia over there. They kept, you know, we got a bunch of guys, Bob Junior, Gary Matthews, it was a bunch of guys. Yeah. And uh, so he called me again. I said, yeah, I'll do it. And then he said to me, he says, I'm going to try to get another player. And he says, what do you got on Ryan Sandberg? I said, I like Sandberg. I said, he's going to be a contact hitter. He's a great athlete. You can probably play him anywhere. Uh, and lo and behold, there's no way I thought he was a Hall of Fame player. I thought he was going to be a good player. Yeah. And it turns out to be one of the greatest second basements ever. <laughs> and to this day, when we talk, I said, hey, and don't forget, you were the throwing in that play, in that trade. You weren't the key man in that trade. So that's how that thing, you know, went down. I mean, hindsight being 2020, I would have loved to finish my career in Philly. It just didn't work out. And, you know, I'm good friends with Bill to this day. But um, at that time, I was angry. I was angry yeah. that. That the, the, it was a promise from one owner to another, and they went. He went against it, and um, you know, again, I, I basically forced the trade. I could have said, "No, give me the one year, I'll stay here," but I didn't. Yeah, and and that Cub team is interesting. So, so you get there, and that first year. Well, uh, so there's one thing I have to ask you about. You get there, so you, you're on that team. Ryan is playing third base. Bump Wills is playing second. Right. You're obviously at short. One of the pitchers you have is Fergie Jenkins, who going back, you know, whatever it was, 12 years, it's the first pitcher you ever faced. Right. And, you know, obviously legend, Hall of Famer, et cetera. What right. was it like being in the locker room with Fergie? It was unbelievable because at that time you got to follow Fergie's career more so than when you first come up. And to see what he did at Wrigley Field with that wind blowing out, all those complete games, 20 game seasons, uh, I was in awe of it. I mean, he was a guy that, I hated to face. Obviously, my first game against them, I remember it. I went 0 for 4. I got my first hit the next game against Ken Holtzman. 
but to play on that team. And that was a team that was in dire straits, basically. They haven't been playing very good. And then we all get over there. And then in 84, we put everything together, man. We, we played exceptional baseball. That, Dallas Green has everything to do with getting fans back into that stadium. I mean, they packed it every single day. And at that time, there were no lights. So it was all day baseball. And I thought, again, oh, we're going to get to the World Series because we beat San Diego the first two. We beat them bad. Then we had to go out there and they swept us. And again, never count your chickens before they, uh, you know, before they hatch their eggs. Uh, you know, you think hey, we got a stranglehold on this thing up two to nothing. And they came out and beat us. But uh, that was a good team. It was a fun team. It was fun to play in that city for the whole summer. Because you talk about a city getting united to behind a team. Uh, it was fun. It was fun. Yeah. It's a great sport. I, I lived there for a couple of years. It's a great sport. Great town. city. Yeah. Um, and it's funny because I mentioned I, I interviewed Ron Say and obviously, you know, with the Dodgers forever. And then he goes to Chicago and he gets a call from uh, Dallas Green. And, you know, Dallas basically says, like, look, I'm I'm pulling together this team and I'm going to, like, commit to bring even more talent in. So he's like, all right, you know, you're already there. Right. Um, so he decides to come. And I think I think he comes in 83. Right. Your second year. He right. comes. And then the next year he had played with Sutcliffe in LA when Sutcliffe was just coming up and, you know, green pulls him aside and says, Hey, you know, what do you think about this guy? And he's like, get him. If you have a chance. Yeah, he was at that time, he was in Cleveland. Yeah. Stutt. Yeah. And, and we, we made a trade right to right. Not in the middle of the year before that. And he came over and he pitched lights out. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, he had a tremendous year with us. Yeah. Great pitcher, but you could see Dallas putting the pieces together. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, things started to gel and uh, uh, you start, you know, you get on that roller coaster. And when those fans at Wrigley Field, you know, people ask me, what was the drawback of playing at Wrigley? The only bad thing is when we went on the road, you play night games and you got to come back in there all day games. But we really didn't think about it in 84. Everything, you had energy. As soon as you stepped foot in the, at Wrigley, that place was rocking. And uh, it, was, it was a fun summer. And and at the end, at, in that '84 season, Sandberg has moved over to second base. So, like right. in your you know kind of last full year, I get well '85 year last full right. year. Um, you now you're playing with him. So you you know you've played with some you know real great second base, great combinations. Yes, I, I did. It, yeah. you, know, you know to, to touch on that, when Sandberg got traded with me, I, I think the biggest thing with with Rhino is, I'm not saying he didn't have good work ethic, but he. You know, he worked, but I remember I called him and I said, hey, uh, when are you going to Arizona for spring training? He says, well, what's the dude, the date we're doing? I went, no, no, no. I said, we're going down two weeks early, you and I. And he goes, okay. So we went down and we worked and we worked. And to this day, until his last game he played, his work ethic was second to none. He just said, and he, he you know, he thanked me. He says, you know what, you, you taught me how to work. And but he not just because I was there, but he continued and he passed all that down to guys like Sean Dunstan and Jody Davis and Durham and those guys. And it's amazing. His work ethic stayed the same no matter how old he got. But he's turned out to be one of the greatest ever to play second base. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you at the at the end you're you know basically they're trying to figure out a way to get Dunstan in and right so right. ultimately you know kind of halfway through the 85 season they decide on right. Dunstan and you go to the Mets and what's right. interesting there is you had played with Davey Johnson with the Phillies 
Right. And um, I'm assuming you kind of said like, look, I'll go play for him, you know, because yeah, I, I said that because they were they were in a pennant race. Right. And I figured, hey, you know what? They might catch lightning in a bottle because they have a good team. Sure. <clears throat> and I remember when I went over there, I knew I was going to be like a part time because they had their they had their regular lineup, which I had no problem with that. Yep. Uh, and so I, I played every now and then at short or second a little bit, not much. And I remember at the end, Frank Cashin was a GM. And before I left, we didn't, we didn't get in the playoffs. Uh, he says, hey, would you be interested to come back next year as a utility player? And I told him, I said, you know what, Frank? I said, the time that I was playing here, there's some balls that were hit that I wasn't getting to. And I knew in my mind, you know what? I don't want to play like this. I, I know if I should get a ball or I should make a play. And I said, I'm going to pass on that. I said, I think that was it for me. So I go home and uh, I had a, he, he was going to guarantee me a, a year as a utility player. And I said, no. And then I was home for about three weeks and uh, Jack McKeon calls me and he says, Hey, uh, you want to stay in baseball? I said, yeah, I do. He says, well, I want you to manage one of our Meredith teams. And I'm thinking I'm going to go to eight ball. He, and I said, where, where do you want me to go? Or where, where, what plans would you have? And he goes, I want you to go to Las Vegas and do our triple A team. I went, wow. Right out of the big leagues to triple A. I went, yeah, I'm all in. So went to Vegas. We won the championship and had a bunch of guys get called up that played under me. And then the very next year, you know, again, I keep saying this phrase, if I could do it over again, Jack calls me and says, Hey, I want you to be our big league manager. You know, looking back, I would, I should have said, I'm, I need another year at AAA. I'm, but hey, when somebody says there was only so many teams as a manager, I said, yeah, okay, I'll manage. But I had a good group of guys. I had Santiago. I had Crook. I had the Alamores. They were all young. And Jack says, just don't worry about wins and losses. Just let's, let's get these guys going in the right direction. They're going to be good players. And that's what we did. We took our lumps. And then the second year there, the owner says, hey, we got to start winning. And Jack comes down and says, we got to start winning. I said, Jack, wait a minute. What was our plan? Our plan was to let these guys play, let them learn from their mistakes. Hey, well, that's changed. You know, and they weren't ready to win yet. So, I obviously, the manager takes the heat there. And then, then I got to let go there. But uh, that's how that sort of uh, went went down. Yeah. And and they didn't help you. Uh, they trade Kevin McReynolds, who was kind of the one established guy in the lineup, yeah. not right. you know, a pup. And, you know, and obviously, you know, kind of tragically, Lamar Hoyt gets gets caught up in drugs. So you lose right. your face. Um, but, uh, yeah, you, uh, you, I mean, what, so you had Kruk in San Diego. Then you had him again in Philadelphia. Yeah. In fact, I got I brought Kruk, Kruk and uh, Randy Reddy uh, and Dave Hollins. They were all in San Diego when I was there. And, and I remember talking. I'm trying to think who our GM was. It might have been uh, Lee, uh, the Cardinal guy. Trying to think, that's my Lee Thomas. Okay, he asked me about these players. I said, because he's trying to change the culture in Philly. I said, get these three guys. They're gamers. They like to play. They play hard. They'd be perfect for this city. And I don't know. You know, they end up getting all three of them. We got Dave Collins in a Rule Five thing, and then we made a trade for Crook and uh, Randy Reddy. And it turned out that they they blended it great with the Phillies, uh, great with the city. And to this day, uh, you know, a guy like Crucky, who's doing the broadcasting, and Dave Hollins, who's a scout here, and Randy Reddy, who did a great job for us. So that turned out pretty good. When you suggest to 
a front office to get these guys and they end up being duds. You feel bad, but they all did what they were supposed to do. I was very proud of them. Yeah. And, and you're there. So, so yeah. So after you let go by San Diego, you're basically brought into Philadelphia as third base coach. You worked for uh, Lee Ilya and Nick Leva, Nick Leva. And then, and then also Jim Fergosi, right? Right. Right. Yeah. And, and so that team, you know, it's, it's Kruk, it's Dykstra, it's Darren Dalton. I mean, these are guys, right. Mitch Williams, these are guys who know how to have fun with them. So, you know, go out, you know, on the team. Yep. They were all, they were all like towards the end of their career. Pete Incavilia was there, uh, Mariano Duncan, Mickey Morandini, Dave Hollins, uh, Jim Eisenreich, uh, all guys. And we, you know, you read this, the tabloids, this team has no chance. They're going to come in last place. They're all, they're towards the end of their careers. And we're all reading all this and we got out of the gate. Unbelievable. And that momentum carried us. And that, I will say this as, as many good teams as I've been, not only playing, but coaching, that was probably the most fun I had with a group of guys that laid it out on the line every night. And uh, they were just fun to, to be around as a coach. Jim Fergosi did a great job as a manager. John Vukovic was one of the coaches, Johnny Padres. Uh, Dennis Minky was a hitting coach. We, we had, a, a, it was a great group. Yeah. And again, we get to the World Series and Mitch Williams makes one bad pitch to uh, to Joe Carter and the rest is history. You know, people ready to hang Mitch Williams. But, you know, as I said, without Mitch, we don't get to the World Series. So, you know, he gave up, a, he threw a bad pitch to Joe Carter and Joe Carter did some damage to it. It was a walk off, and but it was a fun ride. There's no question about that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mitch Williams, wild thing. Mitch Williams, I remember living in Chicago and watching a game one time, and he walks the bases loaded and then strikes out the side. And, and I was and like, he would, Williams. Hey, you know what's amazing? He would tell you, I, I didn't want to think I had a hit, so I did it on purpose. I said, get out of here, Mitch. You didn't do that on purpose. You had no idea where the ball. But he did that a few times. Walk three and strike out three. It was no big deal. Just amazing. Unbelievable. Yeah. And it, it's funny, you mentioned uh, Frank Cashin approaching you at the end of your uh, Met season, and you said, you know, I just couldn't get to a couple of balls, and I thought, you know what, it's time to move on. You also had Dale Murphy on a few of those uh, Phillies teams, and I interviewed him, and he was saying that, you know, he really enjoyed his time in Philadelphia. Obviously, that, you know, clubhouse was a lot of fun. And then he goes to Colorado at the very end of his career, last month of his career, right? And he said, I'm two home runs short of 400 or three or one, whatever. And he's playing in a great park. Playing in the park to get them. And he's like, after a month when I couldn't get it there, it's like, I'm done. People were like, why wouldn't you stick around till 400? He's like, I couldn't get 400. That's he, when I knew. <laughs> he was a great guy. I mean, yeah. and he had a, I, I think he's a Hall of Fame player. He had a great career. Uh, but you know what? When, when you're a player and you can look in the mirror and say, you know what? I mean, everyone likes to have money and get an extra paycheck and that, but a guy like Murph, a lot of pride, uh, and he felt he couldn't do it. And I take my hat off to a guy like that. Yeah. Uh, it was fun him being around. Uh, but again, I think he should be in the hall of fame. He's a class act and it was fun to watch him play. No question. I don't get it. It, it, it that stuff drives me crazy. I, I don't get it. Yeah. Um, uh, and so then, so then you go out to the Angels and you, Matt, you coach under Terry Collins for yes. a couple of years. And then you pop up to Seattle for a year under Lou Pinella. You've got A Rod, Griffey's just left. And I'm always kind of curious because, like, you didn't play with Pinella. Obviously, you know, you guys, you know, baseball's a fraternity and all that. But, like, right. how do you end up with a guy like him? Well, Pat Gillick, uh, who was the general manager of Seattle, 
you know, he, he used to watch a lot of baseball games and I think they were, you know, they were looking for a third base coach. And I think he told Lou, Lou says, I love the way Bo played. He says, but you know, I, I've never seen him coach third. And uh, Pat Gillick says he's good. And so they interviewed me and I got the job there. And, uh, you know, looking back on that, I got to coach third base, Lou Pinella. If you know baseball, a guy like Lou Pinella and Joe Torre, I coached for both of them. Yep. Lou's very high strung. Joe's very low key. And I, the, the reason I can tell you this story, because it stands out in my mind that we're playing in Toronto and Raul Mondesi's in right field and Edgar Martinez is at second. And there's a base hit to right. There's two outs. And I hold up Edgar. Ed, Edgar's got no chance here. Right. And out of the corner of my eye, I can see in the dugout, Lou's throwing his hands up. Like, what are you doing? What are you doing? So the inning's over. We don't score. And so I get to the dugout and he goes, what are you doing? I said, Lou, he's out by 20 feet. He goes, I don't care. You send them with two outs. I said, okay, you're the manager. You know, Lou's never coached third. It's unbelievable how this transpired. The next night, Mondesi's in right. Edwards in second. Two outs. Almost identical ball. I went, screw it. I sent him. He's out by 20 feet. I mean, he isn't. So I'm getting to the dugout and Lou goes, hey, Bo, maybe we better talk about it. I said, yeah, Lou, I think we better talk about this. But the reason I'm preparing that is because Joe Torrey never would get on anybody for not – because he never coached third. And he right. says, I understand. That's a tough – and Lou never coached third either. But, you know, Lou's a different personality. But I was very fortunate to coach third under Lou and Joe Torrey, two people that I respect. Unbelievable. Really, Joe Torrey was phenomenal. And be able to do that uh, sort of, like I said, I've been blessed by the man upstairs to be able to keep the uniform on, stay involved in baseball. But to be able to go to those two managers that had great careers, uh, I look back and uh, the one thing that stands out in my mind in New York is I, I never played the American League. I used to watch TV when I was growing up. The Yankees were on every Saturday, every Saturday. And you, you'd see the names of Ruth, Gary, DiMaggio, Rizzuto, all these names, Howard, Whitey Ford. And then when I put on that uniform at the old Yankee Stadium the first time, literally got goosebumps thinking about every one of those players that I used to watch. I'm now in this house that Ruth built. Uh, I mean, it was something special. There's no question about that. And isn't that amazing? You at that point you'd been in the majors for 35 or so years, maybe even more, like 36 years. Never ago. been in Still. Yankee Stadium. Yeah. Ever. That's and amazing. you know, now with interleague and everything, it would have been easier, but uh it was just it was an honor to put that uniform on. And but it was an honor to play for uh coach under Joe Torre, too. He was a tremendous person. And how'd that transpire? Because you, you coached under him with both the Yankees and the Dodgers for like the better part of five years. How did that? Well, that's another thing that happened. Is a, uh, Cashman, who was the general manager, they were looking for a guy, and he catches a bow's good. And uh, and Joe didn't know me that well. You know, he knew I was, you know, hothead and everything. And you know, it didn't really fit into to Joe's <laughs> makeup. You know, and so they hired me and. We hit it off unbelievable, Joe and I. And then I, I was there with him, and then he got let go. And I remember him because they, at that time, Cash says, all the coaches can look for jobs because whoever we bring in, I can't guarantee you guys are going to be here. 
So when Joe got let go, I got a call from him. He says, Did you sign with anybody? I said, no, a couple of people call me. He goes, don't sign with anybody. And I went, well, do you have something going? He goes, yeah, I got something going in LA. I said, hey, I'll, I'll be glad to put stuff on hold here. And if that happened, about a week it unraveled, I mean, everything came to fruition. And he says, let's go, we're going to LA. And I went, great. So I got to spend more time with Joe out there. That's cool. That, that is very cool how that happened. And, and obviously in between, you were the manager for the Phillies for four years. Right. right. Yeah, you're you're, you're I, in Seattle uh, with Pinella and the Phillies yep. need a manager. And, you know, you're the guy. I, Tell me how that I got a, I got a call from we, we were in, in Chicago. We had just beaten the White Sox in the playoff game. And uh, Ed Wade, who was general manager of the Phillies, uh, Lou called me and said, hey, you got a call from Ed Wade. You want to take this? And I said, uh, and I said, I don't know. I, I think you should take it. It's important. I said, okay. So I went in there and Ed says, hey, Bo, he says, uh, I know you guys are in the playoffs, but when you get done, I know you're still living in Philly. We want to interview for the manager job. And I said, Ed, uh, if this is just a PR thing, I said, I don't want to do this. I said, I, I, you know, I, I understand that I, I was well-liked in Philly and they might get excited that you're interviewing me, but if it's not going anywhere, let's just, just say that I wasn't in. He said, no, no, this is legit. He says, I want you to get interviewed. So I said, okay. And so I got interviewed uh, and Terry Francona, who's now one of the great managers of all time. He had this team. They lost a hundred games. It was a terrible team. I'll be honest with you. It didn't matter who was managing. Sure. And uh, Eddie Wade says, during the interview process, we, we he says, we need to change the culture around here. They're used to losing, blah, blah, blah. Terry's a great guy, but he wasn't getting, uh, getting through to these guys. I know it wasn't a good team. Maybe you can. And I said, okay. And I brought, you know, a different personality. And I told him it's important to win here. Uh, and all of a sudden, you know, it wasn't a great team, but it was a decent team. And we started playing good. We played every one of my years was over 500. We were close to the playoffs in two of those four years. I got manager of the year the first year. And they could see the thing start to turn around. And to this day, Charlie Manuel tells me, you know, you started this thing with Philly by turning that cycle around a little bit. And I said, well, you know, uh, when you get to a certain point, the favorite line with GMs is we need a new voice. You know, it's not like you didn't do the good job because I did, I know I did a good job. And I said, okay, that's fine. It's baseball. You know, that's baseball. You know, if that was the very first time something negative happened, I probably would have been angry, but you know, you see guys get fired. They're good. Terry Francona is a good baseball guy. He got fired. Right. Uh, there's all kinds of guys. Joe Torrey's good base. They, they get fired. That's just the nature of the game. And, you know, Phillies ended up in 2008 winning the World Series. And a lot of those guys I had, I had Utley, I had Howard, I had uh, Jimmy Rollins. Uh, I had a lot of those guys. And I'm not taking credit for it. They were good players. Sure. But they had that work ethic and they, they had that drive. And it was, you know, perfect timing for Charlie. And wasn't real good timing for me at the time. So, yeah. And I, I loved your quote when you came in, at, like as you described, you know, for whatever reason, they just weren't playing well, wasn't that good a team. You said, we have to teach guys how to win and what it takes to win. The work ethic is so important. You need to be dedicated. You need to have pride, um, which, you know, seems like that's probably what was imparted on you when you were coming in. Like you no mentioned, question. Like the Cookie Rojas and those guys. Um, and, and, you know, you know, the thing that that's, that's important in, in Philadelphia, it's a blue collar city and people don't get it. If you're not mentally tough, you can't play here. I mean, you saw what they did to Ben Simmons. They ran him right out of town. So you got to have some toughness. And I, and I, I try to tell the front office, even to, to this day when we talk, I like talent. Talent 
you can see it with your eyes, but you can't see this in your heart or this in your head with your eyes. You got to be able to figure out who can play in this city and who can't. It's a tough city to play for, but it's a great city to play for. When you're doing well, it's the greatest place in the world. And I'll be honest with you, you're going to get booed eventually. I've seen Mike Schmidt get booed. I've seen Steve Carlin. Those are Hall of Fame players. You're going to get booed. And if you can't take it, if you take it personally, you're in trouble. Right. They just want the Phillies to win. They want you to do good. But they expect effort. And that's what I try to tell everybody. Even to this day, I go to spring training. I'm still involved in, in spring training in the uniform. I get to sit I said, give effort every day. Pretend like this is the last game you've ever going to play. And, you know, you walk away with your head up. You look in the mirror and say, you know what? I might have went over four. I might have made two errors, but I gave you every ounce of my energy. If yeah. you do that every day in Philadelphia, eventually you're going to be beloved there. And I try to pass that on to, to younger kids. Don't let the booze run you out of the city. They want to win as bad as you do. Maybe even more. This, these, this fan base is unbelievable. When you're on a good roll. It's fun to come to the ballpark or football field or basketball place or the hockey place. It's a lot of fun to play. Yeah. And you, and, and it's amazing. You're like the prodigal son. You play, you leave, you come back, you coach, you manage, you come back. And then I know. after you run with Tori, you come back again and you're the bench coach now for Ryan Sandberg, your former partner right. uh, and your trade companion <laughs> and uh, Pete McCannon. Um for for the better part of three or four years what was it like being a bench coach and you know kind of the, your last time in uniform with the Phils? and oh by the way um you know being the bench coach for a guy who you played with but who was kind of a kid coming up when you were right playing, you yeah know, it was right? fun because i knew rhino needed you know he was he did a good job in the minor leagues he really did um and, and there was some personal things not with his life but not all with the front office the reason he quit um and but it was fun with him. It was fun with Pete. Pete kept things light. It wasn't a good team. I'll be honest right. with you. It wasn't a very good team. But they got the most, both those guys got the most out of the ability that they had there. And, uh, you know, eventually they, they decided to make some changes. And uh, I think that's when they brought in Cap. Gabe Kapler came in. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, then Girardi followed him and now uh, Rob Thompson. So uh, they made some changes here. Obviously, the payroll is much different now. Dave Dombrowski is is making some great moves, you know. Uh, he has a he has that knack of filling in what you need, and he goes out and gets it. And he's done a great job, and he's putting us in a position now. Maybe the next two or three years, this team's going to be pretty. I think they're going to be pretty involved in pennant races and hopefully another World Series because we came close last year. But Dave's got that knack of uh, when he wants something, he goes out and gets it, yeah. and that's through experience. And he's he's proven that. He knows what it takes to win, and he's done a good job here. Yeah. So I, I have to ask the question since you brought it up earlier. When you were coaching third base or managing, if you had a red sign, red light on a player, and then he ran, oh. <laughs> what's your reaction? I, I'd have been like Dallas. There's no question about it. <laughs> There's no doubt in my mind. Uh, okay. Uh, you know, obviously it might have been a little easier if they were safe, but if they were out, don't even come near me. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh man, that's great. Well, let, well, let me ask you this also. You know, obviously, you know, shortstop in the majors for 16 years. Who do you like to watch today? Who are the guys who you know you look at and you're like, man, that guy's got a good, you know, good glove or good game. I really like the guy we got, Trey Turner. Mm -hmm. uh, I like him a lot. I like Swanson. I love watching Swanson play. All four of those guys that came out, I really respect what they do. Um, you know, 
uh, Dave asked me who's, who, who I thought was the best fielder. I said, I think Swanson. And he said, who do you think is the best overall? I said, Trey Turner. And, uh, you know, they just asked my opinion. But I admire every one of those guys. I, I For some reason, when I watch a game, even when I go to our minor leagues, I watch a game and for some reason my eyes go right to shortstop. It, it doesn't matter who the guy is, how long he's played with us in the minor league. I go look at that. And then I sort of work my way back to the pitcher and all that, the hitters. But because you played that position so long, it's it's like, okay, now I'm watching every move he makes. But we, we finally got our minor league system, thanks to uh, Preston Mattingly, sort of turned things around here for us. Uh, we're in a position now, we got some arms down there. We can make some noise here for the next three or four years. I really believe that. Sure. Uh, when you when you were playing in the majors, and and I know that you know the, the first answer is well, you know, two thirds of the guys, the good guys are out two thirds of the time. Um, but who, who were who were one or two of the guys on the other team? Don't even have to be a pitcher. Just who were just like that guy who just drove you crazy, whether because they just for whatever reason produced against you or whatever. Well, the one guy, and we had we had big time rivalries. We had fights every time we played. It was Pittsburgh, but we are family team. Dave Parker could. He could do damage. Willie Stargell. Yeah. Uh, those guys, for some reason, against that, well, they had great careers, but they turned it up a notch when they played us. Uh, and, you know, I, I've been really fortunate uh, to play with guys like that and Pete Rose and play against Johnny. I, I played with so many great players and against great players that, that, that I respect the game so much more now. Uh, I was able to coach Tony Gwynn, manage Tony Gwynn, who I thought was maybe one of the best pure hitters I coached in Anaheim with Rod Carew and learned so much about hitting from him. Mm. Uh, I mean, there's, there's so many guys that I look up to. I, I had the, uh, I have the uh, honor of coaching Jeter, Cano, Alex Rodriguez. Uh, like I said, I've, I've been blessed and I've always, they've always respected for what I've done. And no matter what I say, let's go out and work extra. Jimmy Rollins, like I said, I've, I've been very lucky. And cool. the fact that they respect me and I respect them, I think it's a, it's a two-way street. Yeah. And I, it, well, I'll, I'll just ask this one last thing. It's, this is just a minor detail that I, I noticed. When you were in Seattle, Ricky Henderson is on the squad. You know, he he'd kind of bounced around towards the end of his career. And you're a stolen base. You're, you're a base stealer. Did you guys ever compare notes? I mean, obviously, he's at a, you know. No, he, he, he took it to another level. He was, yeah. I, I, I asked him, I said, I don't know how you do that little jab step and you time it. I said, because you accelerate faster than any human being I've ever seen. And uh, he said, you know, it, it was a feel. I had this feel that, and, and he said, because I asked him, I said, do you have a lot of, Back then, guys looked at video, but they didn't. I said, did you really study a lot? He goes, no. He says, but I do remember every picture we faced and what their flaw was. Mm. But what he did was, man, he just turned his game completely around with his speed. And hopefully we get to see – we're not going to see a, a, a Ricky Henderson or a Luke Brock. But with these new rules and everything, and you, you might see more base running, base stealing involved now, be a little bit more exciting baseball. Sure. Uh, but to watch Ricky play was, and it was towards the end of his career, and he could still run. But yeah. he, he just had that instinct that he had that it factor that people say, "What's it? It's just it. You can't yeah. explain it. They have it. You and know when you see fun, it. Fun to watch it. It really was. Yeah, that's cool. Um, well, look, Larry Boa, I have to say it's been. I could I could sit here and ask you questions all day. It's a fascinating career. Obviously, success. You know, at every level, and you know, coaching and managing. Obviously, playing. 
Um, it, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for coming on and sharing your stories. Well, I've had a good time and I appreciate coming on and I wish you nothing but luck on your podcast. And like I said, baseball has been great to me and hopefully I can keep going. Awesome. Thanks, Larry. Take You're care. Welcome. And thank you for listening to Chasing Hardware. I've been your host, Rich Lumello. The Michael Stanley Band brought us in and the suburbs with Life is Like are going to take us out. Speak to you next time. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's U-N-I-F-Y-D healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.